Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I am Matt Carpenter, and I'm glad today to interview Mr. Lars Walker. Now, he is a librarian and a historian, as well as a writer, and it's especially his writing that we want to talk about today. So, Lars, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. So, you live in Minnesota, and your background, well, I tell you what, just go ahead and tell us just a little bit about your background. What are some of the things that you have done and, and what, what is your, your primary focus? And I can go ahead and tell the people you, you've written a lot about Viking lore. So, so you, you've written an entire historical fiction series. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that. What drew you into writing about these things? Well, um, I, uh, I grew up in a, uh, on a farm outside a small town in uh, southeastern Minnesota. And uh, I, uh, I fell in love with the Vikings. Well, I should probably talk about my, my faith background first. Uh, I come from a, uh, the Haugians is what we're called. We're a pietistic Lutheran group. And so, although we are Lutherans and very sacramental, uh, we also believe in the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was, I was encouraged to do that at, at a young age. And so I came to faith, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. And um, as far as uh, the... In, in my development, in, in terms of the Vikings, I often say that I, be, I, I fell in love with the Vikings because uh, video games hadn't been invented uh, when <laughs> I was a kid. Uh, I was, you know, I, I was the perfect nerd. I uh, not athletic, and uh, so I, I had to uh, have my adventures in my head, and I latched onto the Vikings because. In the early, very early 1960s, there was this really dumb TV series called Tales of the Vikings. It was produced by Kirk Douglas, the actor, and uh, it barely exists anymore. There are only a few clips of it available at all, but uh, it, was, it was this adventure uh, series, uh, the sort of thing you'd expect uh, about Vikings, and... I just latched onto it. Uh, I up till then I'd been interested in cowboys and the Civil War, but my own family came over. All my ancestors came from Scandinavia in the 1880s, so we uh, we weren't part of that. <laughs> the uh, the Vikings were something I, I had a heritage with, and I kind of latched onto it. And I especially thought the ships were really cool, so I got into that, and I just made it a point to uh, 
read everything I could find on the subject, which wasn't much. Uh, right. I lived in a small town, limited library uh, availability, this, you know, long before the internet, so you could only get what, what you could get a hold of. Uh, but what I, I could find, I devoured and, and, and began a lifetime study. I think I had an idea in my head that someday I was going to write about it, and I just wanted to learn about it, and I did. It's been a lifetime study. Uh, I don't have academic uh, credentials in terms of Viking studies, but among the reenactor community where I involve, I'm, I'm involved, I'm considered a fairly knowledgeable person. So, and then, and it, it all worked into the novels, and and then growing up, um, uh, first of all, there was Tolkien, of course, uh, who was, you know, just just wonderful, blew my mind. Uh, and when I found out he was C.S. Lewis's friend, you know, wow. <laughs> uh, then, uh, then there was. Uh, there was also Robert E. Howard, and you know Robert E. Howard is problematic, I suppose, from a lot of point of views. But when I read his Conan stories, I could actually—I couldn't imagine writing something on the level of Tolkien, but I could imagine writing something sure. on the level of Howard. And so that right. got thinking about the sort of thing I wanted to do, and I finally came up with the idea that I would—I want to do history with magic in it. Um, Clarification, I don't believe in magic. Uh, I don't believe in wizards or witches. I, I don't believe that God has granted them any any powers. But for the sake of stories, it's fun. And uh, that's that's the kind of fantasy I decided I wanted to do. But that is interesting, especially now knowing your background as being pietistic as well. Because, you know, historically, I know in my own background, there is some, at times, some conflict between pietism and and having association with and even reading about things that have to do with magic. So, so, but reading Robert Howard, I can, I can see how that would be a link. His Solomon Kane stories also are, you know, it's not Conan, but still, he, he writes some some interesting adventures. He was he was a he was a writer of great skill. Uh, not you know personally as a person he had uh, some really weird characteristics, but uh, he was a writer of great skill and produced an amazing amount of work in his short life. And uh, yes, I'm still I'm still a fan of Howard. And I just had to find a way to uh, reconcile it with my faith, and and I do. Uh, I, agree. I, I can say I, I, I do. I, my, my, my world is big enough uh, for both. So in, in your writing, though, you introduce, and, and right now you know, we're still just talking about the, and I will probably butcher his last name, but Erling Skogson? Erling Skogson is how you pronounce Shogson. it. You okay. did pretty well. You did pretty well. well. Uh, yeah, th thank you. My, some you know, phonics can be really helpful at times, but then once you get into Central and Northern Europe, yeah, not for Old Norse. 
<laughs> there, I, I have pronunciation guides at the uh, in, in my all of my novels. Uh, just for that reason, I realize it's difficult. The, yes. There's a, a system and a logic to their names, but pronouncing them can be a challenge. But you talk, or just the way that you you express yourself, you show that there is beauty in the great Norse sagas. So, so, so tell us, you know, what is or what are the Norse sagas? And, and talk about the beauty behind those, because that's something most of us are totally unfamiliar with. Yes, and I highly recommend the sagas as reading. They are, although they are the classic sagas, uh, are set in the Viking Age, although there are sagas uh, from later periods too. Uh, and and so and they involve Viking characters, and some of them are heathens, and some of them are Christians. But they're all written by Christians, and uh, which doesn't mean they're in any way evangelical literature. But they they do. There is a, a Christian uh, point of view in the sagas. The sagas are stories that were written by Icelanders. Uh, the Icelanders, of course, were the descendants of a colony of Norwegians uh, who, who settled in Iceland uh, during the Viking Age. And at one point, they decided to start writing the stories of their ancestors. It's quite remarkable, as someone who's mostly Norwegian in heritage myself, the Norwegians themselves didn't write much of the stuff down. It was the Icelanders off at the end of the world who were, well, they were like me. They were interested in their ancestors. They were interested in their ancestors' history. And, and so they wrote down these stories. And uh, there is this big uh, controversy between historians uh, and this book, Viking Legacy, which I translated, uh, has a, a deals with uh, this uh, controversy, this debate uh, to a fair extent. Uh, because it, it, it has a lot of implications for how we write history. Uh, but the question is, how, how much can you trust the sagas? Because the sagas are written at best a couple hundred years after the events they describe. And so you, uh, you have the problem, and a lot of historians, for a lot of the historians, this is a problem. They just, uh, it's too much for them. Uh, can you justify using stories that were written down so long after the events? Uh, that's I I have uh, allied myself with the historians uh, who who believe that you can use the sagas carefully because in the past we have not appreciated how preliterate societies and by preliterate I mean a society that doesn't write books. The Vikings had writing, but they didn't write long narratives. And uh, But a, a society that doesn't write books finds ways to preserve their stories. And I could go on and on about that. I do a whole lecture on it. But the point is uh, that uh, you got these sagas, these stories that were written down by the... Uh, by the, the Icelanders, uh, about their ancestors mostly, and 
the, the historians who reject the sagas as historical sources nevertheless praise them as works of art because they are in fact very likely the first historical novels. Uh, they read remarkably, amazingly like, uh, like modern fiction. Uh, there is a, uh, an economy of language and sometimes a very great eloquence uh, after the manner of Hemingway saying a, uh, saying a lot in just a few words or just having a character's uh, be behavior speak for him rather than giving him a big speech. And uh, the events of the sagas can be quite appalling uh, and sometimes they can be quite charming. But the characters come on in the best sagas, the characters come alive in an amazing way, and they are wonderful uh, treasures of, uh, of, of world literature, and more people ought to be uh, familiar with them. And, uh, you know, I don't know what your background is, but, you know, people should remember that if... If, if you come from the British Isles, especially the northern British Isles, if you got Scottish, Scotch-Irish, Irish ancestry, uh, Welsh, uh, northern England, uh, very likely uh, there's more uh, Viking involved in your, in your not only ge your genealogy, but in your cultural history uh, than... Uh, than you think. And uh, that's another thing that comes out in Viking uh, Legacy. I I'm not going to be, I don't want to plug this book all the time, but uh, it's about how, how the Viking tradition of uh, democratic government uh, influenced the world up to our own time. That is something I, I do want to actually get to here in, in a few minutes, because it is a, that's a, a unique story. There's, I mean, there's so much in your corpus, though, that that, that you cover. In a, you know, in addition to that, you know, one more question though, just when it comes to mythology itself, you know, in school, a lot of us hear about Greek mythology and a little bit maybe about Roman mythology, but Norse mythology is something, as I mentioned earlier, that's we have very little contact with except you know just barely in some popular culture in, in the movies so what is the biggest difference that can you contrast for us anything of significance between greek and norse mythology anything that if people would look at it besides the names what what would jump out to the average person who's who read a little bit of Greek mythology in high school, but doesn't know much about Norse mythology at all, except a few names, Odin, Thor, and Loki. Well, if I, if I were C.S. Lewis, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unlace, uh, if you read C.S. Lewis's uh, Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life, he talks, he, he, he uh, devotes a big, quite a lot of it, uh, to his discovery of Norse mythology as a boy, along with the music of Wagner, which went together in his in his development, and uh, it was a sense. How did he put it? Uh, hit of something cold, remote, um, and 
I forget what the other uh, other uh, descriptor was, uh, but there is a a a, um, a feeling uh, in Norse mythology which is quite unique, and uh, a lot of people like Lewis, uh, like me, have just gotten cotton up caught up in it uh, over time there's a well there, the one the one thing uh, that's different the primary thing that's obviously different is that the old Norse mythology is fatalistic uh, their gods are not immortal they live a long time but they are going to die and so everything is done with this sense of tragedy uh, from the very beginning and uh, some of the the poetry in, involved with that uh, can be quite moving. Hmm. Well, I, I I remember in reading "Surprised by Joy," Lewis says that when he came to the lines, "Balder the beautiful is dead." Yep. That it gripped him, and you he know, had no idea who Balder was at the yes, time. Yes, I mean he, he did not. But just the words that there 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 is something. Again, j just from a little bit of online perusing of, of the uh, of the, I believe it's the, the poetic Edda. Uh, is that how you say that? Or yes, the poetic Edda. There's the poetic Edda and the prose Edda. And it, there is there's a greater degree of haunting in yes. Norse mythology than in Greek mythology. And actually, I've wondered if that could be a reason why in and not to go down this line of thinking too much but if perhaps something like uh if calvinistic theology which you know we are you know my, my church i'm reformed our church is reformed uh but it it can lend itself to fatalism and, and i've wondered if there is a connection between Calvinism, which took stronger root in Northern Europe than in Southern Europe, and that that no Norse sense of, like you said, fatalism. Again, I don't know. This is just something that that's crossed my mind before that I, I've wondered. That's a very interesting idea, and and uh, I have to say, I've, I've never thought about it before, but it is it is conceivable. I can see. Uh, I can see the Scots uh, with their with their heavy Norse uh, tr tradition uh, kind of uh, latching onto this in a kind of an atavistic way. Tolkien would have would have uh, been open to that right away because Tolkien believed that we had uh, ancestral memories uh, that right. old words could uh, could uh, awaken. Yes. Uh, so it wouldn't be surprise me at all, but you know I have no data on this on the idea. Oh sure, right. It, it's just it's the connection of culture, history, and the 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 theology that's adopted. Though those are not isolated boxes, they all you know it, it's much more fluid than than, than sometimes researchers think. So anyway, that, again, that's just something I've. I've wondered. That's very uh, intriguing. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about your work. 
uh, in, in the, the Erling story. So, so these are uh, a series of books for you know for those who are listening. The Erling Shalgason stories, and, and it, it's so. Tell us a little bit about him, and you know, and what is what what is his story, and 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 of course you you have an interesting. Uh, helper uh, in in that an Irish priest in this who, who comes along. So so tell us a little bit about Erling and his relation to history and and, and what you're doing in this series. All right. Um, from the time I was a kid, you know, I had this idea that someday I would write these books, and I had an idea of in my head of the kind of Viking I wanted to write about, who would be, you know. Uh, you know, a good guy, not just some barbarian in a horned helmet, uh, and uh, and I and and oddly enough, I found him. Uh, there is a book among these Icelandic sagas, which I spoke of. There is a very long saga uh, called, which is known as Heimskringla. It was written by an Icelander named Snorri Sturluson in the 13th century. Uh, Snorri was a genius. Uh, he not only wrote Heims Kringla, he also wrote uh, the Prose Edda, so that must, uh, I would say, the bulk of what we know about the Old North myths, uh, we know because he wrote them down. And then he wrote this book about the history of the kings of Norway. And one of the characters who is in there is uh, Erling Schalgsen of Sola. Sola is a place near present-day Stavanger in Norway, southeast part of the country. And he will, he is a prominent character. He is the brother-in-law of Olaf Tryggvason, who was one of the early Christian kings, and later uh, the sworn enemy of uh, another King Olaf, Olaf Haraldsson, Saint Olaf, became uh, the patron saint of Norway. And so he has uh, this major role to play in the sagas. And as I read Heims Kringle, and I've read it a number of times, I began to realize what was behind this guy. And I'm going to refer to Viking Legacy again because uh, this is one of the things that brought me together with Professor Titlestadz, who wrote the book. Uh, it's, it's this admiration for Erling Schalgsen as a character because if as you study his actions in the book and as you think through what he's doing, what he's actually doing is fighting as a defender of an ancient tradition of government. The Vikings had this democratic society. Uh, and please don't misunderstand me. I've had people accuse me of claiming that the Vikings uh, had everybody equal, that it was an egalitarian society. Well, the mock Democratic doesn't necessarily mean egalitarian. Uh, some, you know, some pigs were more equal than others. But <laughs> the uh, the uh, they did have a a democratic system which involved uh, community gatherings and then larger area gatherings and then regional gatherings uh, where they, they made laws and recited the law and adjudicated legal cases. And the kings had to answer to these assemblies. The kings were not, um, 
They were not autocrats. They couldn't just say what they wanted. They had to raise political support. They had to satisfy uh, the constituents. So there was limitation on the king, and the king could be thrown out if he broke the law. And Erling was a defender of that system. And and, and some of the kings who were coming in had continental views. They wanted the king to have more power. They wanted the king to just, you know, make law by fiat. And Erling was fighting that all his life. And uh, he died fighting that. And, uh, and he's a problematic character in, in actually in the book Heims Kringla. He, we hear much good about him, uh, how he freed, uh, he had a system for freeing his slaves, for instance. But uh, he's also the enemy of St. Olaf, who's really the hero of the book. So he's, he's, he's seen in a kind of ambivalent way. But I came to see him more and more as a genuine hero, and I wanted to portray him in that way. Pardon me. Oh, that's fine. So let's let's dig a little bit here because I know you know in Viking Legacy, which again I, I would say to anyone who's interested in history and in political theory, it's a valuable book. It's on I believe Kindle has it for you can get it for fifteen dollars. The only paperback or the, the only paper copy that I found was sixty eight dollars used in Australia. So. <laughs> Can get it from the publisher for some reason. They don't sell the physical books uh, on Amazon. But if you go to uh, School of Arms, is the name of the publisher, uh, and I forget it's what it is dot something but uh school of arms you can sell you can buy the paper i believe you can buy the paper book there oh good there and i carry it around when i go to events and stuff so i sell it personally well and, and because i i would advise anyone who who appreciates this because there is there's a presentation about olaf the great or saint olaf that is different then what little is taught, again, you know, I, I can say for certain that t having taught world history, the state of Alabama has, oh, uh, very little of anything about the Vikings or, you know, anything Scandinavian. So the only name I think that is even ever that's brought up is Gustavus Adolphus uh, in, in the 1600s. But so this is a book that's very helpful, but you take a different view, an alternative view of Olaf and of Erling. So, so could you tell us about that? You know, why is Olaf perhaps not the great person who is presented today? Well, I've been writing, uh, Olaf is in a couple of my novels in the Erling series now, and uh, he actually, if you if you read the saga from a modern point of view, Olaf doesn't look as good as he looked to the original readers. Uh, he had this, uh, what would you say, muscular Christianity approach, at least according to the sagas. Uh, that he came in and first he first he, he preached the gospel and said, you know, welcome, you're welcome uh, to to be baptized, 
And uh, but then if people resisted, then he got tough. And uh, if and and sometimes it went as far as torture and actually killing people. Um, now that narrative is questioned, and I, I I I'm not much on revisionist history, but I am I'm kind of being won over uh, to this point of view uh, that that element was probably exaggerated in the sagas. Uh, recent historians, uh, even historians who aren't particularly friendly to Christianity, have, have come to question a lot of this uh, and to believe that this narrative was actually tailored uh, to, to, to glorify Olaf as a hero and to present him in a way that was acceptable uh, to, to the audience of the 13th century, uh, which isn't really very uh, appealing uh, to the modern reader. Uh, but I have, I have taken that more or less as, uh, as literally true. And, 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 uh, and assumed that Olaf uh, was adopting uh, the model of, uh, of his hero, uh, Charlemagne, the emperor of the Franks, who uh, who used the same methods, uh, who famously massacred forty five hundred uh, uh, Saxon leaders uh, in the uh, in was the ninth century. I, I forget the date exactly, uh, and and the you know Olaf felt that that was pleasing to God. Erling is opposed to that. Now nowhere in the sagas. Do we see Erling actually expressing that opinion? However, Professor Titlestad points out uh, that we also nowhere in the saga see any sign of Erling ever using uh, any kind of forcefulness. And Christianity was well established in his part of Norway, probably before his time. Uh, there's good reason to believe that there was uh, the Christian mission had advanced in southwestern Norway, especially in southwestern Norway, much uh, more, much farther than the sagas give it credit for. And that's in order to make Olaf seem greater. If you present all of Norway as pretty much heathen and he, co and he uh, converts it all, uh, you know, that glorifies him. But in Erling's part of Norway, there is every reason uh, and there's some archaeological reason. Uh, it seems that they, well before Erling's time, uh, the heathen burials die out in that part of Norway, which is a pretty good sign that there were a, a lot of Christians there uh, who even, you know, if, if everybody was a convert, at least it was changing the culture. So... Erling, as a as an example, aside from his his defense of democracy, also his defense of uh, sweet reason and uh, winsome uh, evangelism, rather than forceful evangelism at the point of the sword. Now, now this is something that I've you know I also wanted to talk about the the, the contrast here. Because again, we are taught if you, when you study world history, uh, church history, the men who spread the gospel 
with hammers and swords and knocks to the head are often portrayed very well because they say, well, at least they spread it. And there's another side to this, though. It, it sounds like, for, from what you are, are saying, and, and perhaps this gets into a bigger question about what is the proper way to proclaim the gospel? Because, go ahead. Oh, uh, I want to recommend a book. Uh, it's by Martin and Hannah Wittick. Uh, and it's called The Vikings from Odin to Christ. I believe that's the title in which they talk about some of the things I've been mentioning and the reasons we have to believe that uh, reasonable, uh, kind mission work was a lot more successful in Scandinavian in Scandinavia uh, than than the sagas uh, would would suggest. Well, and and I will say that that Martin Wittek is a very I mean, I, I've enjoyed the history that I've read. I've read just a little bit of his work. He's he's done work on the on the Puritans in the United States oh. and and their influence. So I mean, he has some he has some some interesting views, and, and I, I really like his way of of presenting history from you know, from a vantage point again that we're just we're not accustomed to. So you know the something else that I, and I don't know exactly how to get into this because it's kind of like grabbing a greasy lead ball that's about 300 pounds. So, you know, there's not many way, good ways to do that. But, you know, it seems that the places where dominance of Rome, and I'm talking about not just the, the theology, but the politics, the, the culture of Rome, the places that were, that remained outside have just a different flavor than all the other portions of Central Europe where that they were able to, to get a, a firm grasp. And I'm thinking especially of the Celtic lands as well as the Norse lands. They, they both have this really unique blend that is, I'm not saying that they are, I mean, necessarily superior but they're, they're at least not as bland <laughs> as a culture well I'm not sure uh, about that uh, the uh, you know the Celtic Church is a separate thing was well in the past uh, by early in the Viking Age when the the uh, Rome you know took uh, definite uh, control of things. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and Rome was always uh, over Scandinavia. The, there, is, um, there is an element, and I think the Wittics mention this, that the Church of Eng the English Church uh, in the early Middle Ages had a particularly... Uh, 
what uh, nowadays we would call it, I don't know, tolerant, open-minded approach to their mission work. One of the reasons, you know, and we have all these fights about is Christmas, is Christmas a heathen holiday? Is, some people even say Easter is a heathen holiday. And, uh, well, that's because of the Anglo-Saxons and this wonderful mission work they did in which they... They didn't just run in and, and burn everything down uh, that belonged to the heathens. They took their holidays. They said, okay, we'll keep on uh, celebrating, but now it's it's a Christian holiday, and we, and, and we change the focus. We'll still have fun. We'll just have, have fun uh, in, in the gospel way. And, uh, and that seems to have been very well received, and I think more successful than it's sometimes given credit for. And, and I think that's, I, if I recall correctly, that's one of the one of the things the Wittics write about. Well, I know in your in your book Wolf Time, there is a thread, and of course, it's in the Erling books as well, that you present this more peaceful view of how how the gospel should go out, not by force. So what is that, how does, how does that look for us now? How can we take the lessons that we, we see in the past about the dangers of marrying power with the gospel and forcing the gospel with man-made power? What can we learn about that and apply the lessons about that today? Well, I think that's kind of a, a subject for each, uh, each person and each congregation to ponder in their hearts. I'm not sure whether I have an, an, an agenda for this or a, a master plan. Uh, sure. The, I, you know, I would say, you know, you avoid... Avoid force. Avoid the uh, avoid being what they call a Karen nowadays. <laughs> uh, the you know we we can come off as being all law, and you know as I as a Pietist I have some uh, have a lot of uh, history in that. But uh, we we need to you know deal with people where they are. And listen, you know, maybe listening is the most important thing. Hmm. So moving back a little bit to, to the, the, the Viking Legacy book, uh, tell us about the thing in, you know, in, in, in their, their legacy. You know, what, what is this method? You've talked about it some already, but c contrast the thing as the, the method of governance in Scandinavia with the normal Roman bureaucratic government? Well, one thing I might mention to start out with is something Professor Titlestad points out, uh, which is that we often look back to Greece as the, uh, you know, ancient Athens, as the as the, the the cradle of democracy, and it was in terms of history, uh, but 
Athenian democracy only lasted a short time. Uh, but this organic, traditional democracy, which the Vikings had, which they inherited from the Germanic tribes, and you can read about it uh, in, in the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, he describes it long before the Viking Age. It's, it's, a, it's a system where the, uh, the free men, and it's always the free men, it's not the women, it's not the slaves, uh, but the free men have a voice in these assemblies, and these assemblies, they're not representative, they don't send a representative to a larger assembly, but the leaders of the assemblies will then gather at other assemblies, and everybody has a voice. <laughs> and uh, and there's limitation, and perhaps the most most important thing about it is there is a limitation on the power of the king. He is not allowed to get uh, too big for his boots. Uh, there are ways to deal with him if he gets too big for his boots. Olaf Haraldson, Saint Olaf, could not could not stomach that. Uh, you know, the you, re, you you rebel against the king, you're rebelling against God, because the king is God's representative on earth. So there is, I'm sorry, were you about to say something else? Uh, I think, I think I run through that. Okay, B because it sounds like uh, that there is a contrast between the, you know, that view which is more decentralized and the, you know, the Roman view, which is centralized. And so those two could not coexist well together. Someone had to win. Yeah. Um, you have, and you can relate it to our present, uh, you know, the question of regionalism, federalism, uh, central government, it's the, it is the same old uh, old uh, controversy uh, which has come down to us through the generations. We inherited it from the uh, from the British Isles and they inherited it from the Vikings. So it is it's still going on in a way. And uh, you know it's the question do you how much power are you going to uh, allow the uh, the uh, the central government to take. And meanwhile, you know, what What are the central government's responsibilities? Because uh, one of the elements I'm bringing into the Erling novel I'm working on now is where Olaf gets into it and he says, well, you know, what about all these Viking raids? The Viking raids are primarily to, one of the main purposes of the Viking raids was to provide treasure so that these chieftains in the thing system, the thing was the word that the Vikings used for these assemblies, T-H-I-N-G in English, uh, in these, these chieftains in, in the assemblies, they needed to reward their supporters, and uh, so they, they went off on Viking raids to steal treasure. And uh, so the raiding was actually a byproduct of the democracy. So there is a, you know, there, there's there's a chaotic element there where the, uh, you know, the democracy isn't 
isn't utopia either. It, it has its weaknesses, and you've got this dynamic tension there. Hmm. So the, reading that helped me understand a little bit more, though, how Scandinavian culture still to this day it is more generally democratic and egalitarian than other cultures. I mean, Europe in general is more egalitarian now than it used to be. But, you know, there's a type of maverick attitude, though, that crops up every now and then. So, I mean, go ahead. The Norwegians always took great pride in uh, the fact that they were never serfs. Uh, the Norwegian farmer uh, was uh, was maybe very poor, uh, but he was not tied to the land. He wasn't property. Now I've read I've read history books which actually said that that was a weakness and that Scandinavia suffered from that. Uh, but the Norwegians took pride in that. Right. You, you see it even in the the response of Sweden to COVID, where where you know you just expect the the Norway the uh, the Scandinavian states to all go along with the rest what the what the rest of Europe is doing, and Sweden decides that they're not going to do it, that they're just they're going to be different. That's true, and Norway has never joined the EU. Yeah, right. Uh, they've only been they've only been independent from since eight since nineteen oh five, and they just weren't ready to uh, to give up their independence. So. Right. So it, it, things like that don't make sense unless you know about the cultural background that they have, that, that degree of independence. So, you know, tell us, you, you mentioned earlier that there is a connection with the, the Anglo-Saxons uh, and the Vikings. So, 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 you know, can you help us see what is that connection? So, well, I mean, go ahead. Well, when you talk about the Anglo-Saxons, we tend to think of them as English, but they were they were people who were becoming English. Uh, they came from northern Germany and parts of Scandinavia. Uh, you you look at the the Sutton Who grave, this tremendous uh, Anglo-Saxon ship grave that was. That, uh, that was excavated with so much treasure in it. Well, the treasures are decorated in a style that is almost identical to what you see in Swedish uh, graves from the same period. So they were, they were cousins to the Scandinavians. A lot of people think, and there's some controversy over this, but they spoke similar languages. When a Viking and an Anglo-Saxon uh, did business, uh, they could at least make themselves understood to one another. The, uh, you know, they probably had to use hand signs uh, a fair amount and pointed stuff, but their languages had a lot of in common, and uh, there was some communication there. Uh, so when the Vikings raided England, in a sense, it was it was an interfamily thing. Uh, so, and and so you've got. You know, in England, you've got what they call it, the Witan, uh, which is a big a council, uh, which is is advises the king. Well, that is related to the thing. Uh, there is there is that uh, common uh, 
tradition and, and there is an, uh, a democratic element in, in the English Anglo-Saxon tradition. And I often point uh, out to people, um, and, I, and Professor Titlestad does not say this, so maybe I'm talking through my hat, but you think of the, the Magna Carta, uh, who, who forced King John to sign the Magna Carta? It was, you know, it wasn't Robin Hood in spite of what you see in the movies. It was right. the barons from the north and east of England. Well, there was an old name for the north and east of England. They called it the <laughs> Dane Law. Those were areas where the Danish law, elements of the old Viking law, uh, was still in, in force. And uh, personally, I, I, I don't find it terribly surprising that they would uh, they would want uh, laws that would limit the role of the king that's in the thing tradition so then you know connecting them the anglo-saxons also you said that there's viking there's relation with the vikings to those in scotland and and also you know i'm guessing ireland as well so so is it is it just their sailing there? Is there is there some connection with Celtic and Vikings? Uh, you know, or what 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 is the correlation? Well, in the history of the Viking Age, you start out with the raids, and the raids, the Viking ships were specifically made for lightning, uh, amphibious raids. You sail in, you beach the ship, you run in, you steal stuff, and then you sail right away before any kind of defense can be raised. But gradually, the Vikings began to occupy. And uh, so you've got this area, the Dane Law in England, which was, if it was not settled by a, uh, a majority of Scandinavians in the population, at least the leadership became Scandinavian, and they intermarried with the population and involved in the culture. Again, in Ireland, all uh, most of the big cities in Ireland were founded by Vikings. Uh, Dublin was founded by Vikings as a trading port, mostly for slaves, I, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and uh, Waterford, Wexford, Limerick, uh, all these cities were started as Viking. The, Vi the, the, the Irish had no towns until the Vikings came and established them. So, and you've got an element you know, that settled and intermingled with the population. Brian Beru's great great victory against the Vikings, well, some of the people who were fighting were Irish, and some of the people on his side were Vikings. There were They were all mixed up in the population by that time. So there was uh, strong elements, especially in, especially in England, uh, Northern England and Scotland. Island of Man was a Viking uh, outpost, uh, other, you know, the Northern Isles were, were owned by Scandinavia for quite a long time. But, uh, so, so it was, it was, there was, there was an influence and they left their mark behind. Okay. Well, the last thing I want to, you know, to, to talk a little bit about, not very long though, is you have an entire series of modern fiction. So not just the historical fiction, but you've written several books uh, that are modern. And there is a, a dystopian feel to these books. 
uh, one, I know, I don't remember what year you published Wolf Time, but... It was way back, my gosh. That was around 95, I think, something like. And when I was reading it, I thought that could be, I mean, so this is right now. So much of this is right now. So... I I've always had this mental quirk, and I don't know whether it's unusual or not, but I just look at what's happening, and I, I kind of look along the line, you know, and how, you know, if you line up two points, you can see what direction things are going, and I, I just look down to say, well, it's line, and I say, well, if this is happening, then that is likely to happen, and uh, thing number three is probably coming down the line. And um, frankly, I have this superstition, uh, a personal superstition that I'm almost always wrong in what I predict. So I, one of the reasons I wrote these books was in the hope that I would be proved wrong and people would laugh at me. But uh, sadly, <laughs> I seem to be right uh, fairly often. Yes. Well, I know you're... Um one of the, I mean, it's sad. It also, there, there's a degree of satire in it, of course. The uh, the assisted suicide office is called the Happy Endings Clinic. And, you know, I can't help but simultaneously smirk, but also just shake my head because that's where we live now. I mean, that that's being, you know, going all over the country. People are wanting that. So, and you know, it, it yeah, you, 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 you try to make fun of it, but you know, it breaks your heart at the same time and right. uh, death stores, the, no, the, that's especially in the novel death stores. And, you know, I, I tried to, to deal what, what is it's, you know, what are the, what are the practical uh, implications? What it is, you're a father and you have a, have a daughter who is suicidal. What do you do to protect her when she has a constitutional right? They say to end her life any time. Uh, what you know the the kind of impotent feeling that 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 must raise the kind of despair. I know, and and I, I appreciate though your novels are not the cliched Christian. Oh, all you need is just to have an experience with God, and then everything m magically. Uh, all the cards organize and then, you know, everything turns out the way it's supposed to. No, your characters wrestle with the truth and they wrestle with evil. And it, it's not that, that, the, that the answers are not clear or that the truth is not clear. It is, but you make it known that our fight is just that it is a fight and it's not something that comes from being lazy that was always very important to me i uh and i i take considerable pride uh in the fact that my early novels were published by a secular publisher bain books uh which it kind of blew me away when it happened uh, because I wanted to, I feel our first responsibility, if you're going to, if you're going to preach the gospel, the first 
responsibility is to tell the truth. If you believe the, if you leave the believe the Bible is the truth, the 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 good news is the truth. You got to tell the good the truth about the world too, or other people. Otherwise, people figure you know if you're going to lie about what they know about life, then you're going to lie about everything. So I have tried to tell the truth uh, to to the extent that I, as a fallen being, am able. Well, and, and it is evident, uh, you know, even the fact that you don't shirk from spiritual warfare in your novels is is appreciated because that is something that we just, well, it's all, because most people are natural going materialists. The air we breathe is the air of naturalism. So, so believing that that what things that are real, you may, you can't always see with your eyes, but that God is here, He is real, and His you know, His angels are real, and the principalities and powers are real as well, and 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 you don't hide from that. I try not to. Um, that has been. I'm not, people who know me, if you meet people who know me, they will tell you Walker is not a cheerful guy. I'm not a guy who walks around with a big smile on his face. Uh, I've always tried to face things head on. I may run away then, but at least I will tell the truth about it. Right. Well, th this is, I'm very grateful for your work and I know you, I heard you say earlier that you're working on another Erling novel. So hopefully, you know, so we have that to look forward to upcoming. And have you had any other ideas for modern fiction or is Death Door going to be where it stands for right now? Uh, for the time being, I'm trying to finish up the, uh, the Erling books. I feel... I feel an almost uh, personal obligation to Erling uh, to get his story told. I'm getting old, uh, and uh, I'm not sure how many books I have left in me. Uh, so this I want to do, and uh, if the Lord gives me time, well, then we'll we'll look at something more. All right. Well, Lars, I really appreciate you taking time to talk today. This has been delightful. I've learned a lot and now I have another list of books outside of yours that I need to, uh, to take up and read. So thank you for giving time today. It's been a delight. Thank you.